secularism, which means there is no God, and humanity is its own God. And guess what? We all know that that's bonkers, right? And if you think that it's not bonkers, ask your closest friends, am I a God? And they'll tell you. I'm serious. It's the most foolish thing to think that whatever we think is right is right. Because normally the person who thinks that has a whole trail of people whose hearts they broke, who they did wrong by in their history. There are so many gods being worshipped throughout the world, we couldn't possibly even be aware of them all. So what makes the God of the Bible THE God? Why is he preferential? Today, Pastor Daniel will take us through a series of questions about ourselves and God. And at the end of it, we'll see exactly why he is the true and living God. Then comes the decision. Just like the people of Israel, he loves us even though we're flawed. That's who he is. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with his continuing study entitled Construction. Jesus is then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. They made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, four cubits. The curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. Verse 11, he made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the shelvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtains of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another. He made fifty clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it might be one tabernacle. He made curtains of goat's hair for the tent. Over the tabernacle, he made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain was 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set. He also made, verse 18, 50 bronze clasps to couple the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of badger skins above that. Or remember that was sea cows if for some of your translations. Now verse 20, for the tabernacle he made boards of acacia wood or if you're King James, Shittim wood, standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits. The width of each board was a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle. And he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, 
he made 20 boards, verse 26. And there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. And they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus, he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. Verse 31, and he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far side westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked with an artistic design of cherubim. He made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver and its five pillars with their hooks and he overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold and their five sockets were bronze. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, all of this is in exact fulfillment of Exodus chapter 26, verses 1 to 27. Now, a couple things that we had talked about. With the tent. Remember, everything on the inside. Remember, as we got towards the end of this section, the inner curtain, verses 35 to 38. The tent had two compartments. It had the holy place, which was the larger area, and then there was a veil, and then there was the holy of holies, which was a special place that only the high priest was allowed to go one time a year on the Day of Atonement with an offering of the blood sacrifice. So the entire tabernacle, the only people who could go into the tabernacle, the holy place, was people of the priestly tribe. And the only person who could go into the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which we're going to get to in a second, they could only go in once a year. Now, all of this is symbolic. Why? The only people who are allowed in to the presence of God are those who are the priests. Now, Depending on how you grew up, when you think of a priest, you think of somebody wearing a funky black outfit with a funky white collar, probably a little hot in the summertime. But the Bible tells, I'm being a little cheeky, but the Bible tells us that we're all priests. We're a kingdom of priests. That each one of us, the, the Reformation, they called it the priesthood of all believers, which means that each one of us, because of the finished work of Jesus and our faith and trust in that finished work, that each one of us are a saint. And a saint means one who is set apart. Now, depending on how you were raised, you think of a saint, you think of, of course, a hall of fame of the coolest Christians that ever lived. But guess what? If you're a Christian, you're the coolest who ever lived. Because the only reason we have anything going for us it's because of the finished work of Jesus. So if you notice all of Paul's letter, he calls them all saints. He doesn't say only to you special ones. No, we're all saints. And a lot of the way God is growing all of us up is to help us understand who we really are in Jesus and that we start to act in accordance with our identity that has been given to us by Jesus. The reason oftentimes we act as rebels is because we forget that we've been made saints by the blood of Jesus. 
The reason we live in rebellion against God is because we have forgotten that God has invited us to be part of his family. So the only people who were allowed to go into the tabernacle were the priests. And you and I, if you're born again, are considered priests of the Most High God. That our job, like the priests of old and like Jesus, who we are modeling our lives after, is to mediate the presence of God to a rebellious people. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they'd see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's a priestly function. That we live our lives in a world that they see the way we live and they say, hey, I want to glorify that God that that person's glorifying. I want to be like that because they got something special. And what's amazing is, is nobody ever wanted to be like judgmental people. When was the last time you saw someone being judgmental? I want to be like that person. I want to worship their God. If they're so mean-spirited, I want to be just like it. Anyone ever do that? Didn't think so, right? Our job is to reflect the light of God in the world. The priest's job was to mediate the presence of Yahweh to a people who were rebellious. So all of this is about that portable tent. Remember all the sockets and the poles? Because this thing was meant to be mobile. They were going to move around until they settled down. And ultimately, the tabernacle, this tent, was going to be replaced by a, a long-standing structure, which is called the temple. We call it Solomon's Temple, the first temple. And we'll get to that in about 900 years at the rate I'm going. Now, don't forget, that veil separates the holy place where any of the priests could go from the holy of holies, which only the high priest could go. Remember when Jesus died, he cried, it is finished on the cross. And then he gave up, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his life. And he said there was an earthquake and the veil was torn from top to bottom. That's the veil at the end of this chapter. That veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. When Jesus died and gave up his life for you and I, that veil was torn top to bottom. And that's a very symbolic gesture, isn't it? Because it's saying, look, anybody can go in because Jesus was the great high priest. Jesus offers unlimited access to God by his sacrifice. That's the Christian message. That has been the message that has driven the church for some 2,000 years. And guess what? That's the only message we got. That God loves us enough to send his own son. Now, I realize in a group this size, with hundreds of people listening on live stream right now, people picking this up later, that there's some of you who think that there's another way. There's some of you who think, yeah, I know this whole Jesus thing and my friends are into it or my spouse is into it. I'm just kind of stuck listening to it right now. If you look at every world religion, right, and you assess what does it say about who God is and what does it say about what God requires of me, I believe that anybody who does an honest study will come to a settled faith in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because you can break religions down into basically who is God, right? Now, the, probably the most popular dominant religion in America is the religion of secularism, which means there is no God, and humanity is its own God. And guess what? We all know that that's bonkers, right? And if you think that it's not bonkers, ask your closest friends, am I a God? And they'll tell you. I'm serious. It's the most foolish thing to think that whatever we think is right is right. Because normally the person who thinks that has a whole trail of people whose hearts they broke, who they did wrong by in their history. So a little bit of self-reflection takes like the me being a God, that, that doesn't work. And if, and if you don't believe it, just ask somebody. 
And what's interesting is the people who believe that they're gods, most often they don't have anybody around them because nobody likes them because they think they're a god and they're really not. If you're here today, I should probably say this. If you do think that you're godlike, the reason that everybody bugs you is because you think you're god and nobody worships you. And when you think you deserve worship and nobody gives it to you, that is quite disconcerting, isn't it? So the reason you don't have people around you in close contact with you is because you want something that's not truthful or logical. They're not going to worship you because you're just as messed up as they are. So first, who is God? So you have secular says there's no God. Buddhism says that there's no God. There's no eternal creator God, right? So then your other option is that there is a God. And you have really two main options to that there is a God. One is that there's a million different types of God, which is embodied by Hinduism or the modern New Age movement, which that there's the God of the sun, there's the God of the sand, there's the God of the sea, there's the God of the frogs, and all the rest. Or, so you have multiplicity of gods, and this is a really, like, flyover version of this, or there's one true and living God. And most people would say, if there's a God of the sea, there's probably one God who's God over everything. So you end up coming to monotheism. Now, with monotheism, you have three religions. You have Islam, you have Judaism, and you have Christianity. In Islam, you have to make sure you don't ever eat any meat, you don't drink any alcohol, and you visit Mecca one time in your life. Now, I'll be honest with you. If your God forces a vacation spot on you, probably not the Almighty God. Unless, of course, it's somewhere awesome. And then maybe, like, if it's like, we all got to go to Kauai, we're like, yes, I'm worshiping that God, right? You guys know I'm, so I'm off the rails. I mean, think about it. Is God preferential for one place in the world? The God who created everything? That he's, you can only really meet with him in one spot? Don't think so. So that leaves you Judaism and Christianity. Judaism tells you that you have to keep 613 laws with everything and Because you fail at it, you need the sacrifice every year by a high priest. And guess what? They haven't been doing sacrifices in 2,000 years. So you have that, or you have God saying, look, I am so perfect and so righteous, and you are so not that, and you can never be that, then I'm going to send myself, my own son, to die on a cross for you, to do what you could never do. I'm going to live the life you could never live. I'm going to die the death that you deserved. And I'm going to conquer death because you have a death curse on you. And all you have to do is say thank you. And listen, when you lay it out in that way, it's a no-brainer, right? It's like, yeah. Because if there is a true and living God who is perfect, and we all realize that we're not, we have a major problem. And that's why the gospel is so important. The fact that God loved the world so much that he would become a man and live the perfect life and die, that's the message that we have. That's the message that we have. And what's interesting is the gospel message that God accepts you as you are, knowing that you're flawed but loving you still. That's the greatest love in the world, isn't it? A love that says, look, you are flawed, but I still love you because I'm loving. And you don't have to earn my love. You just get it because that's who I am. You know, it reminds me of my grandmother. I love my grandma. She's a good lady. But if you want to sit at my grandma's table, you got to wash your hands before you dig into the pasta. She loves you, but she's like, you can't get sit at my table without washing your hands. And that's the way God is. God's like, look, I want you at my table. You just need to be cleansed. In order to sit at my table, 
You need to be cleansed, and the cleansing is through faith and trust in Jesus, my son. It's not because my grandma's unloving. She just isn't going to have a mess at her table. And the same thing with the Lord. Two can't walk together unless they be agreed. If someone's heading to Seattle and someone is heading to San Francisco, you just can't go together. You can't. You have to be on the same page. And in order for a flawed people to come into the presence of a holy God, either God needs to be made flawed or we need to be made holy. And God can't be God and be flawed. So we have to be made holy. And that is through the finished work of Jesus. And if you are here and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it before the night's over. And listen, if you're not a Christian, you should be. You want to be. Because God will not be flawed for you, but he will make you holy if you trust in him. That's the gospel message. And if you're not here in the sanctuary, you're listening in another venue or you're listening online, you can get right with God right where you are. You don't need to be in a church to do it. You just need to say, Lord, I accept Jesus as my Savior. And I want to learn how to follow him and walk with him. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have immediate access to the presence of God. You get to come boldly into the Holy of Holies at every single moment because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what all this is about. That's what all this tabernacle stuff, this is what it's about. It's the forerunner, the precursor to God's ultimate work of forgiveness and tabernacling amongst us. Now, in chapter 37 now, we start getting, because now we have the big tabernacle structure, we have the tent. Now we get all the furniture. Remember when we did this, we talked about God's custom furniture. God knows exactly what he wants. So look at what happens. In verse 1 of Exodus chapter 37, it says, Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. Verse 3, and he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Verse 5, and he put the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark, to bear the ark. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half was its width. He made two cherubim of beaten gold. He made them of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherubim was at one end on this side and the other cherub at the other end on the other side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another and the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Now, all of this is in fulfillment of Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. Now, remember, for you visual learners, there it is. Pretty decent rendition. Notice, it's a box. It's a box. There's these two poles. These two poles, remember, this is meant to be mobile, so every time they moved, they needed to be able to roll with it. Notice the, the mercy seat, the atonement cover, and then the two cherubim, or the angels, with their, made of one piece with their wings touching. Now remember, I made this point. This gets placed behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, and everything in the Holy of Holies is meant to be pure gold. Remember I made the point? 
that from the Holy of Holies, which is where the action is at, as it moves out, it goes from the most precious materials of gold, and then as it goes out, then it becomes silver, and then once you get in the outer courts, it becomes bronze. Remember, I made the point that things are more precious in the presence of God. When you spend time in the presence of God, things are more precious. For those people who walk closely with the Lord, those times of suffering and trial become more precious. When you're on the outside, you're like, I just can't believe this is happening to me. Get rid of this. But when you're really close to the Lord, you're like, Lord, I don't like this, but I know you're doing a glorious work in me. And so suffering becomes precious when you're in the presence of God. And so this Ark of the Covenant, all, it's all gold, the whole thing, which was the most precious material there. Now, it's interesting also that we find out that Bezalel made the Ark. That was never mentioned before, but that's what we get, that Bezalel made this Ark of the Covenant. And again, that high priest would bring a blood sacrifice, a blood offering, and, and cover it and put it on top of the Ark. We'd put it on top of that, of that mercy seat, that covering. Now, does anybody remember what goes in to that box ultimately? The two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments, a jar of God's manna that he rained down daily, six days, for the children of Israel to eat, and ultimately Aaron's budded rod, which we're going to get to in the book of Numbers. Remember, there was kind of a rebellion against Aaron and Moses' leadership once again. And God said, look, I want you to take your walking stick. I want you to put it into the tabernacle in which everyone buds overnight. Because remember, walking stick is wood. So imagine if your wood started sprouting out leaves, which everyone budded overnight. That is my chosen one. So think about the symbolism. God's law gets put into the ark. The manna from heaven, the bread gets put in there. And God's choosing of the high priest. And guess what? All of those are perfect pictures of Jesus, aren't they? Only Jesus kept God's law perfectly. It was in his heart, in his motivations. We all not there, Jesus, absolutely. Jesus said, I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread from heaven. If you eat of me, you will never hunger or thirst again. Jesus is saying, I am the pure satisfaction. I am the heavenly manna. And then people all the time say, I will not have Jesus to be my God. I want to be my own God, or I want Buddha to be my God, or I want Muhammad to be my God, or whoever. Jesus was God's chosen one. If all the great teachers and spiritual leaders of the world, as it were, would be able to put their, their staffs, their walking sticks in the tabernacle, Jesus's would have budded. That's what it means. And all of that is in that Ark of the Covenant. So now, from there, look what happens in verse 10. It says, He made the table of acacia wood, two cubits was its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold all around it. And he made a frame of a handbreadth all around it and made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. And he cast for it four wings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table and overlaid them with gold. Jesus is real. Every 
world religion should be considered for who that God is and what does it require of me? That's how Pastor Daniel framed the question of why we should choose Jesus. Because he's the only one who isn't preferential and doesn't require sacrifice. Giving is one of the central themes in the Bible. Believe it or not, it's the main subject of nearly half of the parables that Jesus taught. Like prayer and serving others, money is an outlet of spiritual power. When it's released into ministry, God does amazing things with it. To understand what it means to be a Christ follower, we must also understand what it means to be a giver. Please prayerfully consider becoming a monthly supporter of Jesus is Real Radio. For more information, log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Thanks, Josh. Pastor Daniel would like to invite you to join him each day on Facebook for his two-minute messages. Pastor Daniel shares from his heart and God's Word in a way that will impact your life. It's the perfect way to inject a little bit of Jesus into your routine. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links to the two-minute messages. Now, here's Josh with a preview of what Pastor Daniel will be covering in the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio. Join us again here on Jesus Is Real Radio when we'll hear more about additions to the Tabernacle and how our gifts are diverse and vital, just like the craftsmen of the Tabernacle. Each points to our Savior, Jesus. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through his series entitled Tabernacle. That's next time on Jesus is Real Radio.